Well, I want to welcome everybody here today, also everybody watching us online and also on uh, the television. We're glad that you're a part of the Sagebrush family. In the room, you got a sheet of paper when you came walking in called the contact update form. It says, connect with us. We need your updated information. We do this every August. We weren't able to do it last August, so it's been two years since we've gotten your updated information. If you'd like to get a hold of us, we'd like to get a hold of you. Would you please tell us your name, your address, your phone number, those types of things? If you're at home or you don't like to do stuff on paper, you can go to sagebrush.church update and you can update your information there as well. We promise never to sell your information to any telemarketers or anything like that. There's also an opportunity on the back of the sheet to connect with us about any spiritual decision that you would like to make, any next step. Uh, that you would like to make. So fill that out during the boring parts of the message. I promise you there'll be a few, all right? So uh, take care of that. And then when you're done filling that out, drop it in one of the collection boxes before you go. Uh, last weekend, I was in Farmington, so big shout out to the Farmington campus. I had a wonderful time with those folks. It was so great, so great. We weren't able to really do a grand opening because of the virus, and we're able to this year because the state is wide open. We had over 800 people in attendance. It was incredible. So much fun. And uh, I, you know, I go up and I, I really challenge the Farmington campus to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And they rose to the challenge at 146 people sign up for some form of ministry where they're going to serve. You watch, friends, that Farmington campus is going to take over the Four Corners area. There is no doubt in my mind at all. So way to go, Farmington. We're very proud of you. And then just a few minutes ago, I got some mail, and I got a neat little uh, letter from a woman who uh, has a group in Silver City, New Mexico. Silver City. They come over to her house, and it just so happened that on one particular week, I talked about Stuckey's and the pecan log. Do you remember that? That's a good time right there, the Stuckey's pecan log. And it just so happened that someone from their group came that particular day, and their dessert was the Stuckey's pecan log. So I'm very envious of you in Silver City for having a Stuckey's pecan log, something to enjoy. If you want to love your pastor, find a Stuckey's pecan log and send it to me, 6440 Coors, uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay, that's enough of that silliness right there. All right, let's get in to the message today. We're in the middle of a series called The Hall of Faith, and today we're going to talk about Joseph. Have you ever been in a situation where things just didn't work out the way that you hoped that they would have worked out? It was years ago. I was a student pastor over at Hoffmantown Church before we launched this church on the west side. Uh, we had about six Six, seven hundred middle school kids coming every single week. It was right after Easter, and we were trying to come up with a concept because we were kind of sick of everybody talking about the Easter bunny. What does the Easter bunny have to do with Easter? A bunny that lays eggs. It makes no sense whatsoever, does it? And so I thought, we, we need to get rid of the Easter bunny once and for all, and so we're brainstorming our service, and we're coming up with ideas on how we can kill the Easter bunny. And so we come up with three or four different ways on how we can kill the Easter bunny because Easter is not about the Easter bunny. Easter is about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. The grave has been defeated. Sin has lost its victory. And so that's what we're going to talk about, right? And so we come up with this idea that we're going to get some stuffed animals and we're going to kill these stuffed animals right there on stage. And one of the creative ways in which we're going to kill the Easter bunny is we're going to set the Easter bunny on fire. Now, we had never played with pyrotechnics before, but we thought it's not that big of a deal. You just get a fire extinguisher, you just douse it out. So I told my guys, I said, go to Target, go to Kmart, go to Walmart. They got all the Easter stuff 50% off. Buy a stuffed Easter bunny, and we'll burn the bunny. That's what we'll do. We'll just burn the bunny. Just throw some kerosene on there. Then we'll have the fire extinguisher. We'll just shoot the fire extinguisher onto the Easter bunny. Everything will be fine. 
And they said, okay. I said, that's great. And so my guys went out and they went, bought the Easter bunny, got some kerosene. Now, little did I know that they did not, uh, you know, put a little bit of kerosene on this Easter bunny, but they got a, a, a five-gallon container and they shoved the Easter bunny down and then they filled it with kerosene. I did not know that. Can I emphasize, I did not know that they were doing that. So the service is going absolutely great. Now we're for the big moment where we're going to burn the Easter bunny. We were sick. What can I say, all right? That's messed up right there. And we had it in a noose. And so, oh yeah, it's intense. You're intense in student ministry, friends. So the lights went down, a spotlight came up, and we began to pull the rope, and the Easter bunny came up. And I noticed that there was a line of liquid coming out of the Easter bunny because I think he knows what we're going to do to him. You know what I'm saying? And it's a straight line. It's not like drips. It's a straight line, and there's now a puddle. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. They have doused the Easter bunny in kerosene for the entire day. Now, I'm sitting back by the soundboard while they're doing this. And Billy, one of my interns, is over there getting ready to light the Easter bunny on fire. And the kids realize what we're doing, and they all stand to their feet, and they begin to shout. They begin to cheer. And I begin to scream, no, no, but he couldn't hear me. Because the kids were now chanting, burn the bunny, burn the bunny, burn the bunny. Felt like I was in a satanic ritual, to be honest with you. It was weird. Well, they can't hear me. They can't hear my cries for help. Tell them no. And so they light the Easter bunny on fire. And the Easter bunny just engulfs in flames immediately. It was awesome. And then they took the fire extinguisher and they shot the fire extinguisher and the Easter bunny went out. But there was so much kerosene inside the Easter Bunny that he just came back to life again. He just erupted with fire again. And now there's a line of fire going all the way down to the stage. And the stage is on fire as well. Well, Billy panics. And he takes the fire extinguisher. He just lets it open. He just gives it everything he's got. He empties the container. Now we've got a cloud of smoke and fire extinguisher fluid coming towards the kids. It's like a nuclear bomb has just gone off. And it begins to envelop these kids. These kids are coughing. These kids have asthma. They begin to run out of the building. We had to evacuate the building. Now I remember going outside thinking, I've got to call my boss. What am I going to say to him? You know, we burnt the bunny, burnt the bunny, right? And I was certain that I was going to lose my job. And I thought, when I, when I have my next job interview, you know, they say, you know, what happened in your last job? I say, well, we burnt the bunny. That's what happened. We burnt the bunny and it was all over. Needless to say, it did not work out the way that I hoped that it would work out. Well, that's kind of a synopsis of Joseph's life. He, he had long seasons of his life where nothing made any sense to him, where nothing was working out the way that he hoped that it would. Now, the story of Joseph is found in Genesis chapters 37 through chapter 50. I hope you'll spend time this next week opening up the Sagebrush app, doing the daily devotionals. I hope this next week you'll read Genesis 37 through 50, and you'll read about the story of Joseph. We're going to do 13 chapters in less than 30 minutes. So let's start. When we get to the story, Joseph is 17 years old, and uh, he is the youngest of 10 Brothers, He is the baby of the family. Just out of curiosity, how many of you are the oldest in your family? Anybody oldest in your family? Raise your hand up high. Let me see you. Play along at home as well. Oldest? Okay. Yeah, you can see their frustration, can't you? Your parents tried everything on you and nothing worked, did it? You're in therapy now because of the way that they raised you, right? 
But you had a pretty good life because you could tell on your brothers and sisters because they were younger than you, right? And your wardrobe, whoo, did you have a wardrobe being the oldest child? Everything was brand new for you. And when you dropped your pacifier out of your mouth, your parents would pick that up and they'd throw that away. They'd go buy you a new pacifier, wouldn't they? How many middle kids do we have here? Middle kids, let me see you. Where are you at? Middle kids. Yeah, they're messed up too. You know that, right? The reason they're messed up is because they never got away with anything. Little brother, little sisters telling on them. Older brother, older sisters telling on them. They didn't appreciate that at all. And clothes, you never saw a brand new pair of anything until you reached elementary school, right? It was one hand-me-down after another hand-me-down after another hand-me-down. And when your pacifier fell out of your mouth, your parents would pick that up. They'd run out some water over it and shove it back in your mouth. That's what they would do. How many youngest kids we got? Yeah, a bunch of spoiled brats. That's what they are, I tell you what. I'm the youngest in my family, so I can say that. We got away with everything, didn't we? Because by the time we became teenagers, our parents just didn't care anymore. You know what I mean? I mean, your older brother would come tell on you. Your older sister would come tell on you. Parents would say, is he dead? Is he dead? Because if he's not dead, I don't really care. Just let him do whatever he wants to do at this point in time. And clothes... Well, my oldest daughter was dressed to the nines. My middle daughter, Hannah, she had all the hand-me-downs, and Cammie was in the backyard streaking. Youngest kids don't need clothes. Where's Cammie? Backyard streaking. All right, sounds good to me. That's one less diaper we got to worry about. I tell you what, that sounds good to me. And when the youngest child dropped their pacifier onto the ground, we just shoved it back in their mouth. That's what we did. But Joseph is the baby of the family. And what we find out in this story is that Joseph's dad loves him more than the other brothers. Look at what the Bible says here. Now, Israel, that's Joseph's dad, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. So Joseph's dad goes off and he makes for his son a beautiful, richly ornamented robe. And he, and he gives it to his son, Joseph. But to the other boys, he says, go shop at Goodwill. That's what he says to them. They get this beautiful, look at that. Look like a pimp, don't I? I tell you what, all right? <laughs> so I got the richly ornamented robe. Let me explain about the robe, okay? It's an expensive robe. Colors meant something back in this time period. Did you know that? Like purple means royalty, or every color they had a, a symbolic thing for it. So it's a, it's a coat of many colors. What's Joseph's dad saying? He's saying, this son of mine means everything to me. This son of mine means more to me than anything else on the face of this earth. Now, now how do you think that went over with the other ten brothers? When they saw the dad give Joseph the coat of many colors. Let me tell you something. When only one child gets the precious robe, when only one child lights up the eyes of a mom or a dad, when one child is treated differently than the other children, parents, you are inflicting wounds upon your family that you might not ever overcome. You're causing sibling rivalry, and it's going to be on steroids. It's going to be the worst thing that you've ever seen. Because your kids are going to hate each other as they vie for your love and for your affection. And some of you in this room, some of you at home watching me, you know exactly what I'm talking about because that's you. You were the child that never could uh, measure up, weren't you? 
You're the one that was always compared to that older brother, that older sister, that younger brother, that younger sister. Why can't you be more like them? And you saw how your parents got excited when your siblings came into the room and how they looked at you when you came into the room. You saw their looks of disgust. You saw them shake their heads at you. It just seemed like nothing you could ever do would ever be good enough, would it? And here's what's interesting. You still carry the scars. Now, you're 30, 40, 50 years old. You still carry it. You've never quite gotten over it. And every time you look back upon it, every time you think about it, it makes you angry. It makes you frustrated. I watched my dad. He lived to his 82 years old until he passed away from cancer. He wasn't the favored son. His sister was the one that everybody loved. His sister was the one that everybody cared about. And every time he'd bring that up, every time he'd talk about it, even in his 80s, the anger and the bitterness and the rage would come out of him. He never overcame it. He never overcame it. So if that's you today, friend, you're the child that could never put a smile on your mom and dad's face, your best was never good enough, and you carry around resentment and pain and bitterness towards them, and every time you think about it, it gets you mad, it gets you angry, let it go, friend. Don't follow in the footsteps of my father. Because that anger and that bitterness and that resentment isn't going to serve you at all. It's going to ruin your relationships today. It's going to fester up. It's going to boil over. You lay it down at the foot of the cross. And you remember that you're a child of his. That you're a child, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he has no favorites. He loves you with a never-ending love. And there's nothing you can do today that would cause him to love you a little bit more. And there's nothing you can do today that would cause him to love you a little bit less. You are his child. You keep your identity secure in your relationship with God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. Parents, if you're doing this, you, it's gut check time. If you're doing this, if you're treating one child better than another child, stop it right now. Here's what's interesting about this story. Joseph has the, the coat of many colors, right? He's the man with the plan. The brothers can't stand Joseph. Isn't that interesting to you? They still love their dad. They're still fighting for their dad's affection. But they hate their brother. They don't hate the dad who's done it. And that's why I said to you a second ago, if you're living your life, if this is how you're handling your family, you are causing sibling rivalry to come upon you like you have never seen before. So Joseph, we find out, wears the robe everywhere he goes. He's a 17-year-old snot-nosed kid. He's full of pride and arrogance. Thinks he's a little bit better than everybody else. You know why? Because his dad tells him all the time that he's better than everybody else. And his brothers hate him. They can't stand him. Well, Joseph has a couple of dreams. And each of the dreams tell him that one day he's going to be some big shot, that he's going to be second in charge, that all of his brothers are one day going to bow down before him. Listen, Joseph, if they already hate you, you might not want to share that dream. Let's look at the second dream that he gets. Joseph had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Can you imagine? Joseph walks in the room and says, hey, just FYI, I just want you to know I'm, gonna, I'm kind of a big deal. Not, I mean, not right now, not today, but eventually I'm going to be a big shot. And every one of you in this room, dad, you too, you too, dad, are going to bow down before me. And I can imagine the dad saying, oh, your majesty, that's good to know. Can you go pick up the dog poop in the backyard before that happens? We really would appreciate that. The Bible says that his brothers hated him even more because of his dreams. Well, Joseph's dad's oblivious to the situation that he's caused because of his favoritism. 
He's so naive and so stupid that he sends his sons out to the fields to check on the sheep, to check on the cattle. And then he says to Joseph, go check on your brothers and bring back a report. Tell me how they're doing. What does that tell you? It tells you that Joseph's too good to work in the fields. And don't you think the brothers caught wind of that? And he said, you go check on them. What's he asking them to do? You go tattle on your brothers. Boy, that's a way you really have a strong bond between brothers if one of them's tattling on the others all the time. So Joseph heads out and walks that direction. They don't realize how much these brothers hate him. And they see him from a distance. And one of them says, here comes that dreamer. How'd they know it was him? Because he's wearing that stupid robe. And he wore that robe to shove it in their face again and again, day after day, to remind them that they would never, ever measure up. They hated him so much that they said, let's kill him. And they grabbed him and they stripped him of his robe. And then they threw him into a pit. And they sat around and they talked about the different ways that they were going to kill him, the different ways that they were going to end his life. Now you're Joseph and you're in a pit and you think, oh my goodness, I didn't think they hated me this much. And then all of a sudden some human traffickers come by. And they just say, you know, let's not kill our brother. Let's not have blood, his blood on our hands. Let's just sell him into slavery to these men. And so they did. And with the robe, they found an animal, and they killed the animal. They took the blood of the animal, and they poured it all over the robe. And then when they came home, they threw it at their dad's feet. And they say, your son Joseph, that you love so much? Well, I guess he didn't make it. He's dead. Joseph now finds himself as a prisoner, and he begins to head to where his new home is going to be. He is sold into slavery to a man by the name of Potiphar. Interesting, the Bible says this phrase over and over again when you read Genesis 37 through chapter 50. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Even in the midst of the heartache, even in the midst of the pain, God is still with him. And he feels that and he knows that. And rather than getting down and depressed and discouraged, he does his very best work for Potiphar. And it's not too long before he's second in charge of Potiphar's house. But Joseph's got a problem. Potiphar has a wife, and the wife thinks Joseph is smoking hot. And every day she comes to him and she says, let's have an affair. Come to bed with me. Come to bed with me. No one will ever know. And I want you to think about this for a second. Uh, how's it gone so far for Joseph serving the Lord? It hadn't gone so good, has it? If you found yourself in Joseph's shoes and all of a sudden there was this pretty woman that wanted to have a relationship with you, you might you know, say, you know what, God hadn't done me a doggone thing for me. And I'm kind of mad at him. I mean, I, I've lost my home, I've lost my family, I've lost everything that I've ever loved. I, you know what, I think I will. Isn't that what most people do? When things don't work out the way that you think that they should, when you pray for something and you get the direct opposite of what you prayed for, it doesn't work out, the miracle doesn't come, God doesn't intervene in your situation, we get angry, don't we? We say, you know what, God, I'll live the way I want to live. I'll do what I want to do. That Jesus stuff doesn't work after all. It would have been easy for Joseph to have done that. But he wouldn't. He looked at her and he said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my master and sin against God? I won't do it. And he had a cloak on and she grabbed the cloak and she ripped it from him and he ran away from the crazy woman. 
And when her husband came back, she lied and said that that Hebrew slave tried to make sport of me, tried to rape me. The Bible says, when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Things go from bad to worse. He, he goes from being a free person to being a slave. And now he goes from being a slave to being someone who's incarcerated for a crime that he didn't even commit. And you would think at this point he would shake his fist at God and say, forget it, God. I'm not going to follow you anymore. Look at you. Following you has led me to this prison. You could have helped me. You could have saved me. You didn't do anything for me. But not Joseph. He refuses to let go. He holds on. He has a positive attitude. He continues to seek after his God. He believes that somehow God's going to bring something beautiful out of something that's just heinous, out of something that is so bad. He won't give up. While he's there, he has an encounter with a couple of guys who worked at Pharaoh's court. A guy was a cupbearer. The other guy was a baker. Something's happened with Pharaoh's food, and they've been thrown in prison. And both of them have dreams. And Joseph is willing to interpret the dreams. And it makes you wonder, as he interprets the dreams for these two people, if it made him think back to some, I don't know, 11 years earlier when he had a dream that one day he would be something special, that one day God would use him in extraordinary ways. He starts off with the cupbearer's dream he interprets the dream he said the three branches are three days within three days pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to the position and you will put pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer but when all goes well with you remember me and show me kindness mention me to pharaoh and get me out of this prison well, the baker hears the interpretation and says, that was a pretty good interpretation. Three days later, he's going to go back to the Pharaoh's side. That sounds pretty good. He said, hey, would you mind interpreting the dream for me that I had? So Joseph listens to what the dream was, and then he interprets it. He says, within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. And I can imagine the baker saying, that's the last time I ask you to interpret a dream for me. I tell you, well, sure enough, it was. Because everything that Joseph predicted, it happened. The cupbearer went back to his right standing. The baker died. And guess what? The cupbearer, going back into Pharaoh's presence, even though Joseph interpreted that dream, gave him some peace in the midst of the storm. Even though Joseph said, would you please remember me? The cupbearer forgot him. Never mentioned him. For two more years. Thirteen years. Think about that. Thirteen years has gone by. And nothing's worked out. He's hit one dead end after another dead end after another dead end. And you would think after 13 years of life falling apart around you, that you would finally say, forget you, God. I'm not serving you. I'm not following you. I don't care a thing about you. I'm going to live my life the way that I want to live my life. You've never come through for me, not one time. Not Joseph. Not one time in Scripture does it ever say that he questioned the will of God, that he questioned the direction of God. It's like Joseph says, you know what? We just need to give God some more time. 
We're just going to give him some more time to intervene. We're just going to give him some more time to do something miraculous in the midst of my situation. Joseph's this kind of guy who just refuses to quit. A powerful example of faith was found on the walls of a concentration camp. Etched on one of the prison walls were the following words. I believe in the sun, even though it doesn't shine. I believe in love, even when it isn't shown. I believe in God, even when he doesn't speak. And I imagine the person who etched those words in stone on that wall probably took him days, maybe weeks. And I just imagine the conviction that he must have had. And how could he have such hope in the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of everything that he was experiencing, everything that he was seeing? How could he put those defiant words and believe those things to be true in light of what he was facing? The only answer I have is that his eyes chose to see the unseen. And that's the way it was for Joseph. He said, I'm going to hold on to the Lord no matter what. I'm going to follow the Lord no matter what. I'm not going to give up on the Lord. I know that he's put a dream inside of me, and I know that he will come through in his timing, in his way. I'm going to trust in him, even though it's so very, very dark. And I want you to hear this. If you find yourself in the prison of doubt and worry and confusion, you look at your life and you say, nothing has worked out the way that I thought that it would. I want you to hear this. God loves you. God sees you. God still believes in you. And God's going to help you. God does his very best work in dark places. Well, guess what happens? Pharaoh has a dream. And the cupbearer all of a sudden remembers that there was a guy in the prison cell that interpreted his dream when he found himself in a similar mess two years earlier. And so he goes to the Pharaoh and says, hey, I think we know a guy who can interpret the dream, but he's in prison. So the Pharaoh brings Joseph before him. And the Pharaoh shares with Joseph the dream. And Joseph says, well, here's the interpretation of the dream. You're going to have seven years of plenty, and then you're going to have seven years of famine. I know that you're a pretty smart little pharaoh here. You probably want to store up during the seven years of plenty so that when the seven years of famine come, there'll still be enough to eat. And so Pharaoh looked at Joseph and said, I'm putting you in charge. In fact, you will be second in charge of all of Egypt. You will be my right-hand man. And in an instant, in the blink of an eye, the dream becomes a reality. Well, for the next seven years, guess what Joseph does? He, he stores up because he knows that the seven years of famine are going to come. And sure enough, they do. A few years into the famine, guess who starts coming looking for food? Joseph's brothers. Now, 15, 16 years has gone by. Joseph looks quite a bit different than he did before, and they don't recognize Joseph at all. Let me ask you a question. Here are the, the, the people who stole everything from you. You probably still remember the day they threw you in the pit. You still remember the day they talked about all the different ways they were going to kill you. And they meant it. And then they came up with a solution, sell you to human traffickers. These are the ones who took you from your dad. These are the ones who took you from your hometown. These are the ones who took you away from everything that you ever loved. And now they're standing before you, and they want food. What would you do with them? 
what would you do to them? You could probably come up with several diabolical things, couldn't you? You're second in charge of the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth. Joseph chose to do the most difficult thing. He chose to forgive them. In true mafiosa style, I want you to see what he does. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Come close to me. You can see it, can't you? And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. What? I forgive you. And I'm not angry with you. What you did to me put me on the path to get me where I am today. And this was God's plan. And this was God's purpose. There were some things that I needed to learn. I was a 17-year-old snot-nosed jerky kid. I needed to learn how to lead. I needed to learn how to humble myself. And there's some lessons that can only be learned in the midst of a storm. I learned them in Potiphar's house, and I learned them when I was falsely accused, and I learned them in that prison cell. Oh, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. The saving of many lives. I forgive you. Because I trust God's plan, and I trust God's purpose. Read a story this past week about a young man by the name of Chris Carrier who had something awful happen to him when he was a little boy. Take a look at this. Growing up in this neighborhood was just a wonderful, a wonderful childhood. It really was until <laughs> that day. It was a Friday the last school day of the week and when I got off the bus here was this gentleman coming at me and he said hey I'm throwing a party for your dad and by any chance would you be willing to help me with some of the decorations he uh, had an RV I put my things down in the seat behind the door hopped in the passenger seat but once we had left town once we were out in the middle of nowhere he pulled me away from the window into the middle of the, the RV forced me basically onto my back, looking up at him, and began to stab me in the chest. He literally stood back up and, and said, son, I'm gonna take you somewhere, and I'm gonna drop you off. We turned left onto this uh, old Caliche country road, what we affectionately call Alligator Alley. He stopped the RV, and he pointed at a tree. He said, why don't you sit down over there by the tree? And while I was looking down, he must have pulled the gun that I had seen the outlines of in his pocket. And he aimed it right at my left temple. That was the last thing I remember. When I woke up six days later, I remember my dad flat out told me, he said, Chris, 
you were kidnapped, you were shot through the head, and you were left to die in the Florida Everglades, and you were missing for six days. It was a very tough moment to see this new normal that I was going to have to contend with. I don't know exactly what the trigger was, but it, that transformation began to happen in me in which I realized if God protected me from being left to die in the Everglades, well, he's, he's earned my trust. I received a phone call. It's a major sharer from the Coral Gables police, and he told me, he said, one of our old chiefs had come across David McAllister in a nursing home in North Miami. Would you like to go meet with him face to face? Because if you would, I can make those arrangements. This is the definition of awkward. What do you say to a guy who the last time you saw him put a bullet through your head? I sat down and I told him, I said, Mr. McAllister, I'd like you to know what's really been kind of the source of my strength through all of this. We prayed together and we walked through that. And praise the Lord, I think that week of visiting him left an impression on him. And so I shared the gospel as best I could. It was just a beautiful, surreal moment of, of just being able to say, Mr. McAllister, I want you to know there's nothing between you and me except our newfound friendship. I want you to know I forgive you. And Mr. McAllister, blind as he was and, and weak, rolled over in that bed, grabbed my hand as if he could have seen it. And with, through the tears and the difficulty, said, I'm sorry. And like the thief on the cross next to Jesus, I only had one opportunity, and he took advantage of it and prayed to receive Christ. So did David McAllister. Bitterness will rob you of everything. Hatred, vengeance, revenge. You say, Todd, I don't, I don't know how Joseph did it. I, I don't know how Chris Carrier did it. Did it under the power of God. And that's the only way you're going to do it as well. You, you, you say, wait, wait a second, you don't, you don't know what happened to me. You don't, you don't know what was the circumstance. I, I don't think I can ever forgive that. They don't, they don't deserve forgiveness. That's true. No doubt about it. But let me ask you a question. Do you deserve forgiveness? You see, the Bible says that we are to forgive in the same way that we have been forgiven. And, and why is God so big and hung up on us forgiving? Because he knows if you carry this around, it'll ruin your life. You become the prisoner. My wife has tried to teach this to me for decades. She said, forgiveness is a gift that you give to yourself. It's not necessarily a gift that you give to somebody else. You're releasing yourself of the hatred, of the pain, of the vengeance that you want to give to the other person. And you're finally free to be everything that God wants you to be. So why would we forgive? Well, because there was another dreamer that came. And that dreamer was stripped of his robe too. And his band of brothers... They turned their back on him, left him to face his execution on his own. He walked a mile up the Via Della Rosa to the place of the skull. And there, nine-inch nails went into his hands and into his feet, a crown of thorns upon his head, beaten so badly he was beyond recognition. 
And his accusers stood there and spit on him, laughed at him, and mocked him. If you really are the king of the Jews, come on down, call your angels. Jesus just remained silent. What was the first thing that Jesus said from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they have no idea what they're doing. Why do we forgive? Because he forgave us. And the only pathway to freedom and becoming the person that God really wants you to become is to lay that burden, to lay that pain at the foot of the cross. And I hope that you'll do that today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a word of prayer. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what baggage that you have been carrying. But I want to give you just a little bit of space. Just a little bit of space to do some business with the Lord. Because my guess is, is that some of us here and on, at home, you're just tired. You're tired of carrying it. You're tired of hating. And you need to release it. Ask God right now in this moment to give you the strength to do it. Ask God to give you the power to finally let this go once and for all and to move forward in faith. I'm going to be quiet. You do business with God right now. Lord, the greatest gift you ever gave me was your forgiveness. That you would die on that cross so I could be forgiven of my sin. That you could wash me new again. Second greatest gift is when people in my life have forgiven me. And I didn't deserve either one. Lord, help us to be forgivers. To trust in your purpose and in your plan to realize what Satan intended for evil, that you can bring about good. Help us to let it go. Not carry that burden anymore because that burden's not going to do us any good. Release us of that. Lord, for all the dreamers who are here today who find themselves in God's waiting room waiting for you to intervene, waiting for you to change the situation, waiting for the dream to come true, God, I pray they'd hold on to you as you hold on to them. And that they would never, no, never let you go. Lord, that you would sustain them and you would strengthen them and that you would give them hope and that their faith would be stronger than it's ever been before. God, give them that resilient, defiant faith that we talk about that no matter what might come their way, blessed be your holy name. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.